David Hartrick, your new book is Silver Linings, which is about Sir Bobby Robson, the oldest man in football. As I always do this, I always tag Bobby Robson. He's the oldest man in football, uh, even though he's dead. He's still older even than Roy Hodgson. Um, but you, you run Ockley Books, and I'm sure there'll be people reading this who uh, might be intimidated by the amount of books that have come out on pitch publishing, uh, and there are some bad ones coming out next year on pitch. So avoid a book about the FA Youth Cup. But you've got lots of experience in reading about football and also writing. So um, say I'm a 25-year-old kid uh, and I've got a great idea for a book. Uh, how will you at Ockley make sure that book reaches the shelves in a readable, superb form? The, the, what you've already said is that y- you've got the idea. And I think one of the things that is a little bit of a struggle at the moment is an original idea. Because there are lots and lots of people, very talented people, who can write really, really well. But there are a lot of football books out there and have been over the ages. And when, uh, so for example, when Liverpool won the title, I think was in within two weeks of it being confirmed that they'd won the title, I had four people, four separate people, pitching me their book about Liverpool winning the title. And it was... Uh, don't get me wrong there is a market there but we're a slightly more niche we have to be a little bit more careful about what we invest in and what we publish and uh, you know to be frank we can't push something out into that crowded a market so I think you have to you have to have a good idea um, because I can work with a writer as long as there is a, a kernel of a, a, a good writer in there. You know, we can. That's what editing is. It's improving what you write. It's working on it. It's enhancing it. But yeah, you have to start with that idea. And I, I get pitched a lot of the same sort of books. So I, I get pitched a lot of diary style things. You know, often based around non-league and and that sort of thing. And the thing is about them is as they can be really, really good, but you need a hook. So obviously with, with Steve Hill, who we spoke about, the hook was going to every game and doing the card. But if it's just a sort of bog-standard normal season, you have to understand that not everybody is interested in that. I also get pitched a lot of books that, to be frank, are already out. And it's it's all a bit, well, if you... If you aren't aware this book already exists and you haven't come across that in the course of of your research, that's a bit of a red flag in the first place. So the idea is key, really. The the idea is the thing, and having that that kernel of something to start with in the first place goes, goes beyond even the quality of the writing, really. In terms of the writing as well, a lot of people underestimate the commitment to to write a book a lot of people love the idea of of writing a book and they have this grand idea of a lovely room with a big window and a typewriter and sitting there and putting it together over over days and weeks and months and the reality is often that it's about trying to snatch an hour on it here and there with you know potentially children running around in the background Mm -hmm. and other things to do and and that's one of the things we do with our our writers is is we don't impose um, times in the contract because it just we've had too many books early on where it throttled them really because they were desperately trying to get the book out and that affects the quality of the writing so yeah there are there are a lot of factors at place I do read every single 
um, submission I get sent through, I try to reply to as many as possible. Since lockdown, we've just had so many because a lot of people were sort of had time on their hands or they want to, they're using it as a moment in their life to mark the point they went and did somewhere else. It's, it's been very, very difficult. And plus we've had to essentially, because of COVID, we've had to essentially mothball the company um, for about eight months because we had no retail sales and um, we launched a couple of books last year without and it, it's it's been tough you know really really tough they've sold about a third of what we would would normally expect and like them to so we've sort of had to mothball everything to go again in the last six months of of this year really and we've got some new stuff coming and we're going to have sort of soft relaunches of the couple we've already done to just try and get things going again but it's been an incredibly tough time in publishing incredibly tough time and if you if you even if you have a passing interest in something now is the time to buy a book um and i'm not even talking just about football it, it, ha- it is an incredibly tough time out there. It's a low-margin industry that has had its legs chopped off for a year. <laughs> I suppose like championship um, football in a way. You're talking about Huddersfield uh, trying to bounce back for a few years. Yeah, Waterstones and Dawn are there. Um, I am petrified about Relentless.com. You know, if you type relentless.com into your browser, you go to Amazon, that, yeah, that's yeah, what their business that's... is. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so which titles are having this soft relaunch, which are already on the shelves of the football library? Um, we're going to have uh, Steve Hill's Wall of Sport. We'll get a little push again um, back end of the year because, as I said, it, it's just so difficult without the retail support. But also Andrew Lawns We Lose Every Week, which is a book on the history of football chanting and is... It's just a brilliant book. It's quite a forensic study, goes into a lot of detail. Really, really love that book, to be honest with you. Really, really yeah. love it. So it deserves a, deserves a push. There have been books which just list chance, but what I, why I was so excited to talk to Andrew, I remember starting to say, I'm going to really enjoy this one because it brings together uh, music and football and sociology. And, of course, Andrew has had a very lovely few months uh, because he's a Norwich fan. And uh, yes. he, he supports the right football team. Along come Norwich are a superb organisation. And this book we lose every week. Uh, with the title changed, by the way. Did you have something to do with that? Yeah. Um, Kevin Day is a friend of mine. Ages ago, he came to me wanting a little bit of help and advice on this book. So I, I helped him a little bit. He went and got a, a contract somewhere. Didn't think anything more of it. We had Andrew's book all laid out. We were all pretty much ready to go. And lo and behold, Kevin, completely unrelated, had come up with the exact same title, which was Who Are You? And we had to... Kevin was in the trade press and they were they were already up on Nielsen and they were launching before. And it was like, right, OK, well, we, we're going to have to change this. You can launch it with the same title, you know they, that does that does happen, but it would have been too confusing to have two football books out within two months of each other with the same title. Just in terms of sort of searches on Amazon and Google and everywhere else, to be brutally honest with you. So yeah, we had a <laughs> we we were literally sort of doing the final checks on it, and it was like, oh right, we better change this pretty quickly. And I hope um, Kevin owes you several alcoholic beverages i've got who are you which is a magisterial book uh, and i spoke to mm. kevin who was as brilliant as you'd imagine he's very old now isn't he 660 <laughs> yes old. No, he, doesn't, 
I don't like. He doesn't like being reminded of that. Oh, sixty's no, the new forty. A, he, he's got a really sharp football mind, Kevin. He he can he can do the fan thing really really well, but he can also do the sort of analytical, sociological take on it really really well as well. So, yeah, I have it too, and I'm not just saying this because my name's in the back, but. It, it is a really, really brilliant book. But Andrew's book is, is is just superb. If anybody has any interest in discovering the origin of various chants, and it don't, they, these things aren't, they're less organic than you might think in some cases and more organic than you think in others, really. It's mm-hmm. just a fascinating book, fascinating book. Uh, and this book, um, yes, uh, We Lose Every Week is great, but uh, I spoke to Kevin Day, uh, and bought the book. And if you turn to Brighton, I'm sure you've read the Brighton chapter. Where, why you shouldn't support them? Where do I start? The being despicable yeah. thing is enough, surely. Uh, and apparently, he wanted to just put a picture of a seagull uh, on the chapter, kind of Len Shackleton style. But yeah, 92 football teams and why you shouldn't support them uh, is Kevin Day's book, which is out on Bloomsbury. I once bumped into Matthew Lowing uh, at the Waterstones in Piccadilly, uh, and so he. Uh, commissions are very... It's like the XL recordings of football literature. Very few titles make the Bloomsbury list. Uh, and when they do, they might have David Hartrick's name in the back. That's enough of Kevin Day. Let's talk Daniel Story, who has also been in the yeah. football library and has written books on Gaza and Cantona and is a fine, fine human being. He writes the foreword to your book, Silver Linings. You, you've known each other for a while. Uh, did you edit his material as well? Yeah, I've known Dan for years and years. A few years back when he was still at Football 365, we, were, we did a podcast together. We used to meet up once a week and play snooker and various other things. We decided to do a book via Rockley for the Bobby Robson Foundation. And Dan was doing a series called Portrait of an Icon uh, on Football 365. And we decided to put them together in a book. We got lots of artwork from very talented people. We decided to do it as a limited run so that we could tell the Bobby Robson Foundation what they were going to earn from it. And the idea was to try and give them a tenner out of every copy sold. And we were going to try and sell sort of 800 if possible. And we wanted between us to try and top it up to 10 grand. It went ballistic for a few months and we ended up... um, Sending them £36,000, which was great. I mean, that's great. It's a great foundation, and you do mention uh, in yeah. your book all about it. Uh, I liked... When Graham Taylor died, I wrote this piece that got published in a fanzine about the Graham Taylor way of life. I think Bobby, the Bobby Robson way of life is the same, but mining pit instead of Lincolnshire <sighs> press pit. Uh, he just seemed like such a lovely human being, obviously prone to irascibility, as all great men are. Uh, but the paternal figure of English football, especially because he was the manager when modern football began at Italia 90, uh, you used the phrase and an island measured by minutes, which I've not heard before. If that's your phrase, can you unpack it? If you look at where football was going into that tournament, it was a pretty dark place in a lot of respects. And it was actually the 1989 Arsenal-Liverpool game that was the sort of the actual first germ of the Premier League. It was Italia 90 where the English fans behaved themselves better than many had expected, where you had these 
gigantic TV audiences, and not just for the semi-final, it should be said. Um, and also you had a country that sort of embraced the sport again instead of all the headlines being negative ones about hooliganism, about governance of the game, about the various tragedies, about court cases, etc. Italian 90 was, the, was a moment in time, really, where the sport returned to the forefront. And obviously it's helped by England having this narrative arc, particularly through the, through the knockouts, where they win one game in the sort of best way possible, which is with the very last kick of the game. They then go up against the team of the tournament and it's a brilliant game and they win 3-2 and it goes to extra time and everybody loves Cameroon and everybody can still love Cameroon after that game. And then you come up against sort of the, the tabloid's oldest enemy and England were sensational in that semi-final. They did everything they possibly could to win and they just weren't quite as... They were not as good as the best team in the world and there was no actual disgrace in that. And it, suddenly everybody was invested in football again and they, they had Gaza t-shirts and they wanted to go to games. They wanted to watch the game on TV. They were excited about a season starting. And it's it's almost impossible to describe that feeling after particularly the mid-80s, but the mid to late 80s, when it was it was a pretty nasty world to be involved in football, yeah. to Price, say the least. Crisis after crisis. And at Watford, John Barnes left, Graham Taylor left. Dave Bassett came in uh, and things were reverting to type. Uh, Elton sold the club on because he was uh, otherwise engaged. Paul Hayward is writing a book on the national team. Henry Winter has written a book on the national team. Jonathan Wilson told the story of England in 10 matches. And, of course, Pete Davis uh, wrote the most brilliant book, turned into the film One Night in Turin, but English football, as he described it, was all played out. Of those, uh, well, Paul's in process, but he's written about England for The Telegraph as the sports reporter for years and years, and The Guardian. Whose book do you most want it to be compared to? Because this book, Silver Linings, is a sociological look at the England football team from... 1872 to the present or to 1990 because you do start with the before story in a in a really smart really well written digest uh the fa come off so badly it it doesn't even it's not worth saying but yes winter wilson hayward davis heart trick you're well played out i think i think is my favorite football book of all time and it's it's a book i come back to time and time again because not only is it well written but Mm the level of access there is is just incredible some of the stories and offhand comments um in that book would be major national news stories if they that was the england team now i have a slight personal collection i've never met him but obviously pete lives and works in huddersfield so he is he is local to me and at Can some you put point in a word? We ha- i'd like to talk to him yes yeah well we have we've talked over twitter and sort of promised to meet up at some point but that is something I will follow up on at some point. This is a very different book because it's it's the before really I wanted to set out how the position of England manager is has become one of the most difficult in world football still is but by the time Bobby Robson took it it really was a poison chalice and it was only going to get worse through that decade whereas I think I think some of the other books are going in different directions with it. I'm a huge Jonathan Wilson fan. 
and I love the anatomy of England in ten matches. I I love that book. So if you if you had to put me in a box, I think being in any box with Jonathan Wilson would be a very good place to be. But but all played out is genuinely, I think, my favourite yeah. football book. I hope you can have Jonathan Wilson's book sales and the ability for this book to be turned into a film like Pete's was, because Pete was in it as one of the talking heads. But the film, we, we know the footage very well, Have a Word, Ness and Dormer, but seeing it all written out and seeing the clash between the players and the what was going on in the terraces, but the, with the management, yeah, you're right, well, from Walter Winterbottom to Alf Ramsey to Ramsey not resigning in 1970 to the Reavy nonsense to the Greenwood era via, oh, someone, was it Joe Mercer who came in for seven games? Yes. Yes, yeah. which I'd forgotten about. Uh, and then Bobby Robson took over, having won the league with Ipswich and won the UEFA Cup with Ipswich, right? He'd come very, very close. Come second. A couple of second places and a third, but he won an FA Cup and he won a UEFA Cup. Right. Uh, sorry, yeah. Cup Winners' Cup, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. He was the first time the FA had, had basically tried a succession plan because Greenwood came in and did a very, very good job at steadying the ship. I, I don't know if people are aware, but the sort of Riviera was very difficult one on the pitch and then he just he left he sort of dropped a hand grenade behind him and walked away there is a book there's a book that is coming out very soon by a member of parliament about don revy revy had his own reasons for doing it there was i i would argue that there was fault on both sides there were some very difficult members of the fa to work with um, and he had his reasons, but the way he did it was just completely incendiary, really. So Greenwood comes in, Merce comes in and is sort of completely unoffensive and does just about enough to, to get things at least on an even keel. And then Greenwood's job really was one of, of trying to build something for the 80s and trying to... So the first thing he does is, is sort of reinstate the B team and brought in Bobby Robson and Don Howe to run it, and that was... A, a grooming process basically to make sure when Greenwood wanted to go that Robson was ready to, to step up. The eight years that Robson spends in charge of England are completely extraordinary really and I think everybody when you say Bobby Robson England they go Italia 90. That is that is obviously the full stop to it. That's the reason why everybody remembers him so fondly and that's the big cultural moment. I think there's less of an understanding that the eight years before were incredible. They, they, some of the stuff that happened right from the right from this very first squad and not picking Kevin Keegan, he he had a rougher ride than I think anybody else who took the role, including Graham Taylor, and he endured and he stayed and he he did an excellent job and he somehow via Italia 90, manages to earn this redemption. But again, I'm not sure people realise that he was he was public enemy number one for two years before that, after Euro 88. He was, his private life was pulled apart. There was just outright lies printed about him in the papers. He was, everything he did was under intense scrutiny. He had, some of the crowds at Wembley were unbelievable really I mean I think for the, for the Gaza game the Czechoslovakia game I think it was only about 17,000 people which there, is it un- which, unreal unreal yeah um, but that was the level of disassociation with the England team and with Bobby Robson's England because of the way the press covered it which was 
incredibly vindictive, incredibly personal and in- incredibly nasty, if truth be told. I've just read so, in Private Eye uh, about Piers Morgan having a go at the BBC's integrity. This is the man who edited the News of the World and the Mirror and got sacked on both occasions. There is a problem with the tabloid media, and I've just decided to go out and buy a couple of the newspapers just to see what they're saying about this guy, Dominic Cummings. I don't want to get too political, but really one of the things that doesn't make this country great are newspapers trying to influence people, um, and then there's the BBC and then there's politicians. But with the England football team... You can just kick them because they're ours. They're our boys. Anyone can manage the England football team. Anyone can say, well, yes, Trent Alexander-Arnold should be in the team because of his assist rate. I think he should be picked in central midfield, personally. But um, I don't know why journos enjoy kicking the national team and especially the manager. Because it really is the most unrewarding of rewarding jobs. You might as well just stick DT of Arsenal Fan TV or better better still, Attila the stockbroker as manager. I think we're a lot better than we were. I sort of comment in the very end of the book that there's still a hell of a lot of work to be done. A lot of unconscious racism bias, I think, still exists. But when you go back to the 80s and the 90s, doing the newspaper research on this book, it, I mean, it is another world, really, because... Some of, some of the criticism of Robson is is so highly personal and relentless, and goes way way too far. You know, beyond the beyond the bounds of decency, really. And it, it's not just that. You realise how far we've come on when you see we played a friendly in 1990 before the World Cup against Brazil. It was the game that gets featured in the World in Motion video, actually. Brazil in the blue kit. And in a couple of the write-ups in the in the national newspapers, you've got direct references to either Brazil's what they call coffee-coloured, or in one case, half-cast footballers. And you think this is just, even though this feels like recent history, this is another world. Mm. <laughs> it really is. So, so I got hold of some copies of whole newspapers as well as sort of going through online archives. And when you read through the tone of the front of the newspapers, it's all pretty much the same. And you've got to understand that one of the reasons that Robson came under the scrutiny he did is because the, the Sun and the Mirror, for instance, prided themselves on making and breaking politicians' careers, pop stars' careers, celebrities' careers, soap stars' careers. Robson was the the one they couldn't get he wouldn't go you know they they were after him as early as 1984 the sun were a wales wales versus england game handing out robson out cloth in badges to the fans um and they they could not get him and that that is a big part as to why the coverage ramps up the way it does and particularly after the saudi arabia friendly in 1988 it, it is just quite extraordinary reading through the coverage, the Sun's five-page Bobby Robson out special and Nigel Clark's reporting in the mirror. Um, doing that side of this book, it was quite a, a, a tough time sometimes. It's quite a tough time. It's not It's not nice reading through a sort of relentless assault on someone's character like that. Five yeah. years ago, uh, the, the stuff about Roy Hodgson, who's just uh, similarly, like Robson, ridden off into the sunset, uh, pursued by Ray Lewington, uh, but yeah, even worse than Poland, even worse than 
um, 2008. Losing to Iceland in 2016 with, when Wayne Rooney couldn't pass a ball and everyone was frozen. Um, fortunately, a lot has gone on behind the scenes uh, getting the players' ship shape. Uh, and you saw Marcus Rashford last night scored a penalty uh, and lasted 120 minutes with an injury. Um, so there's something getting tougher about the players. Uh, I think Southgate, um, having had the experience he had as a player, uh, which Hodgson didn't have, which... Um, well, Robson did have. Robson was an England international. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons he endured is, right, going back to his playing career, he really considered pulling on an England shirt and then being an England manager as the absolute pinnacles of each side of the profession. And that never left him. So if you think about everything he went through, when Graham Taylor was struggling and it looked like he was going to have to go, Bobby Robson offered to come back and take back over in the interim and do the job for free for the FA because he considered it a sense of a sense of duty. And I think if you go back and look at his grounding, one of the things that Walter Winsbottom did with him when he was England manager is he identified Howard Robson as two thinkers, as two people who thought beyond just the world of playing. And he got them in for coaching courses really early. He used Bobby Robson to, to scout teams at World Cups for him because he... Trusted his opinion to that degree. That identification of Robson as as an England manager began so so long ago that when he took over the job, he was seen as even though he'd never really done the role apart from the England B manager and the England B team was quite a very very low key thing. He was seen as a company man. So the FA, anything the FA did, he got lumped in along with. And the papers were sort of quite naked and opening their dislike of the FA as well as Bobby Robson. So you're sort of getting attacked on two different levels there, really. It was an incredible eight years, and that's why I really wanted to tell the story of them, um, because it does it does just feel like a, an, another world. I hate to say the words, you couldn't make it up, <laughs> but you, there, are, there are aspects of it that you really couldn't. The, the tabloid circulation war and the various tragedies and how Robson coped with that and then coming out of it with Italian United it is, it is just a sort of a narrative writer's dream, really. Indeed. I'm going to ask for your Robson era 11, so have a think about that. But um, I've just noticed... Uh, based on a couple of weeks, uh, days ago, I read a piece um, with him. The former England technical director is now at Brighton and Hove Albion. Would yes. it not be common sense for Dan Ashworth and Graham Potter to continue what they start at Brighton, a, and a club which is one of the 15 best in the world and hasn't really won anything? Uh, you can almost substitute and Smith must score with and Gaza must score in 1996. <sighs> What England are doing with this holistic approach uh, is what Brighton are doing now, playing the same kind of 4-3-3 through the year groups, uh, big emphasis on kind of football de Salah skill and ability with the ball. I think there's some positivity to be taken. And Graham Potter is a man who knows the mental, psychological side of football. And uh, not just because Brighton will have a great season next season, if they get a flipping goal scorer... England have got a flipping goal scorer. Imagine Graham Potter having Jaden Sancho, Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford, Mason Greenwood, Mason Mount at his disposal. Yeah, the, the only problem is we are very, very happy with Graham Potter at Brighton and Hove Albion. Thank you very much. Yeah, and so were Ostersons and that went badly. The 
thing about what Potter is doing with Brighton is that he is he's been allowed to sort of go about his business, but we are spectacularly well run off the pitch at the moment. Um, so it's not just Ashworth, the way that Paul Barber runs the club and the way that Tony Bloom has invested in the right areas and he's seeing a, a return on his investment on lots of levels now. It feels like a moment for Potter to stay for one more season to me. But people just see Brighton's league position and write Graham Potter off when you talk about potentially being an England manager in the future. I think that ignores the work that he's done and he is an incredibly impressive coach. You know, the, the thing, me, me and Dan Story were talking about this recently, the thing about Brighton is they are one of the best coach teams in that league. You can see from the way they set themselves out, from the patterns, from the individual roles they play, everybody buys into it and it's a collective effort. Now, I, I would love that with England at some point. I would absolutely love that and and... Who knows, it may well be Potter is the man to do it. But I just think at the moment, you probably need to see a bit of a return on the, the coaching time that's been put in. If we had a striker, we'd have had that season where we'd be 10th to 12th. And I think he probably needs to have that season. Almost a little bit like Eddie Howe did, where he had that really excellent season with Bournemouth. Uh, where it was the back end of the season, they got themselves, I can't remember where they finished, but it was about, was it 7th or 8th in the league, something like that. I think he probably needs to have a season, not even approaching that, but where he finishes in that 10th to 12th bracket to get himself into the into the running, really. Because I, um, I, I was certain that Sean Dyche would be the next England manager, but I think Potter will suit the FA a bit better. I, th- I think you're probably right. I think the thing about Potter is he's very progressive. People may not understand that, but he's incredibly progressive. So he's very big on a lot of the things that the FA want to be very big on going forward. And that's the, the sort of psychology of it and the mental aspects of the game and how you get that extra sort of 5% out of somebody um, off the training pitch, essentially. So, and Potter is really, really big on all of that. So, I can definitely see it. But Sean Dice is a sorely underrated manager. Really, he really is. He's he's incredibly impressive when what he's turned Burnley into, which is a very safe, dependable team. And they don't. The thing is, I think he gets very unduly thought about because they don't play the football that people say they do. They're actually a a bit more progressive than people think and it's not just Mike Bassett style 4 for something too it's it is there is a lot more to it than that and I, I like Sean Dyche I do I get the chance to do a few Burnley games each season and I love going over there because it's a great ground great people and it's the games are always sort of fun that's the other thing the game's always quite fun it's it's never a drudge so yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be adverse to Sean Dyche being England manager, but I just don't think it's ever going to happen because his sort of public image is not. Yeah, is like not Allardyce. What they want. It's almost like yeah. the, the football version of the next James Bond. Um, and let's not bring uh, skin pigmentation into it. I'd love for a black man to manage England, uh, but looking at the moment, white coaches are more chosen. But it's nice that the FA are giving some diversity. Talking of black players, it does seem incredible that it was rare, it was notable, when Bobby Robson picked six England players for one squad. Mm. Uh, And I wonder how many 
how many of those players get in your 11? Well, it was a very... The interesting thing about that was a very, very deliberate reaction. The scenes at the under-21 game in Denmark, in particular, a couple of months before, were pretty disgraceful, which is where England played with four four black under-21 internationals. Um, and the England fans that had gone over because it was back in the days where you basically your under 21 team followed your full side around Europe and played a game the day before. So you had a contingent of England fans who were already there and every time a black player received the ball, they were booing them. Um, and very obviously, very noticeably. And every time the ball was then passed to a white player, they were cheering. And this was England's own fans. And Robson's philosophy was if the best 11 footballers for England are black, I'm going to pick all 11. And he had absolutely no margin for anybody who was even in the slightest bit offended by that. And it, in 1982, that was an incredibly admirable uh, thing to well, do. Well, yeah, this is uh, the, the era of two-tone. It, and it really was... I tell you what, reading back through the newspaper coverage and reaction to that really was uh, quite grim in certain quarters. So I think in terms of who get, would get into my Robson era 11, I think I think maybe, maybe one. Maybe one. Mm. Uh, but the main question, Shilton or Clements? I would go with Shilton. 1990, there were a couple of times where a taller... <laughs> fitter, more sprightly goalkeeper could have done better Um, and he wasn't great in the penalty shootout but people forget he was the goalkeeper for the team in the tournament that year he was pretty decent throughout and as you look back through his time with England for a goalkeeper that played 125 times he rarely if ever let England down Um, he was he was incredibly consistent. And there was there's a couple of key games, away games uh, in particular, a qualifier in the 70s and then the qualifier for 1990, where, to be frank, he, he kept us in the game. Um, so I think you have to go with Shilton because you have to think, well, what would Bobby Robson do? And Bobby Robson wouldn't even think about it. He'd go with Shilton every single day of the week. Although it was sad that Ray Clements lost his life a couple of months ago. Um, your, yeah. Now, formation. Back three with a sweeper or a back four? Well, this is interesting because as pe- some people, everybody knows about the sweeper system switching in Italian 90, but I think if I was picking a Robson era team, I think it would probably have to be in a 4-4-2 just because that feels fitting, if I'm brutally honest with you. And... I am going to break the mould of Robson's 4-4-2 because Robson's 4-4-2 was basically a 4-3 and a winger 2. So you you would have essentially three central midfielders and one winger who would do all of the wide work. And that evolved with the sort of emergence of Barnes that and Waddle, that evolved to being slightly more progressive and playing with two wingers. My team's going to have two wingers, as England did in the decade. But yeah, that wasn't always the case. So yeah, I think probably four four two is a more fitting tribute. Let's do the obvious names. Lineker up front, because he yeah. scored all the goals. But who are you going to partner Lineker with? Uh, Peter Beardsley. 
has Ooh, to be Peter Mears. So okay. 1986, when that partnership was formed, that is what turns the whole tournament round in the Poland game. Oh. There was something between the two of them. There was, you'll have read as many footballers' autobiographies as I have, and when, when you read a striker's one, there's always that moment in the book where they talk about the partner they had the telepathic relationship with that they just knew where they were. And Lineker and Beardsley, they had that connection from the off. And I think Peter Beardsley is... Everybody knows he was a really good player, but I'm not sure people know quite how good he was. There were the back end of the 1980s, particularly that phenomenal Liverpool season of 87-88, where you had Beardsley and Barnes move to the club and Liverpool were just sensational over the course of that year. I think they only lose one game, was it? And it was... They were utterly brilliant. I think people don't realise how, how good he was, but as a front two, Beardsley and Lineker in the Robson era were, were untouched, really, because early in the decade, Lineker coming along, um, he made his debut in 1985, but he really came into the side in 1986. That really changes the course of Robson's England because he'd been looking... It, there'd been a revolving cast of sort of so-so strikers like Tony Woodcock, who was who was good on his day, but his day didn't come often enough. Paul Mariner, who was uh, akin to sort of putting a, an oak tree up front and firing <laughs> the ball towards it. And, you know, there are a few others that came in. Mark Haley started his England career absolutely sensationally, but then that sort of seven or eight games in immediately fell away. He was desperate to find a striker and along comes Gary Lineker and as I said fortunes change but the minute that Beardsley and Lineker get put together things go very differently mm. it didn't work in Euro 88 but there are a lot of reasons why we failed at Euro 88 to be fair but they would be my front two Right and we'll, we'll leave the central midfield for the moment but the back four would you put Terry Butcher in the back four? Yeah he was Robson's Soldier. He of course, was, yeah, they knew each other from right, Ipswich. right from his right from his time with Ipswich all the way through. He was you know, to go back to Euro '88 again. Terry Butcher breaking his leg in a Rangers game and then being it mis- misdiagnosed as the wrong bone, and he did he couldn't take part in Euro '88 at all, and that was a huge factor, a huge factor in the failure. So Terry Butcher would have to be in there. Do I want to cheat here? Do I want to cheat here? <laughs> well, what would Bobby Robson do? The thing is, Des Walker came in right at the end of the 90s and he was, for me, the best defender. I think Robson may put in somebody else. There was a lot of who is going to be Terry Butcher's partner. You know, there was absolutely no debate about Terry Butcher going. By the time you get to 1990, Butcher is just a big lump will head away a car if you throw it at him so he needed that pace and that guile of walker next to him but I think Mark Wright has a has a shout as well although Robson fell out with Mark Wright after Euro 88 but I think I think I'm going to go with Des Walker just because I really really like Des Walker <laughs> no one you'll never beat Des Walker famously exactly full back exactly left back Stuart Pearce comes in at the end of the decade but for most of Robson's time, right up until 1988, he had Kenny Sampson playing there. Kenny Sampson was a, a far better player than a lot of people realise, and he was he was England's Mr Dependable, really. It's incredibly sad what has happened to Kenny Sampson post-football, and that was started by almost... It, he was one of those footballers where, in the space of about six months, he went from being really, really good 
brilliantly consistent England's right back, Arsenal's right back, to all in the course of one summer, his career sort of slightly collapsed because he went to Euro 88 and it became very, very clear that his pace had gone. His one-on-one defending wasn't great and he never Never, he got in one more squad after that, but he never played for England again after Euro 88. I think as good as Pierce was when he came in, I think Robson would would go with Sampson, just because he had more time with him. Right back again, bit of a revolving cast came through. Again, I don't want the Italia 90 bias in there, but again, if you were to go on who was probably the best quality through that decade, it probably is Paul Parker, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he probably is the best we had because it was a little bit of a problem position at times. So I might be sorely tempted to go with Paul Parker there. I'm trying to think of players from earlier in the decade to put in there, but it, they just really weren't of the quality of the side that finishes. Who played right back in 86? Uh, 86 was... Oh, you put... I tell you what, let me look it up because yeah, you put please, me on the spot here. Please do. And while you're looking it up, I will remind... Uh, the listener that Silver Linings, David Hartrick's book, uh, is out. Is it the seventh of June? It comes out. No, it's already out. Right, because of COVID and everything else. To go off on a slight tangent, we we were things are very very different in publishing at the moment, and it was all ready to go. And I sort of said to them, "Why don't we just go here?" To be honest, because. You can hang on and you can hang on, but I know via sort of having to mothball Ockley, a pitcher in a different position to me, it was just like there really is no point just hanging on for a sort of arbitrary date. We may as well go for it here. So we got it out and it seems to be going over very well, seems to be doing doing quite well, thankfully. Um, But the other question I'd just quickly answer is some people asked me straight away how come you haven't put it out through Ockley and the answer is because I did not want the hassle of doing my own book <laughs> outsourcing own. it to Paul and Jane that's very good yeah, oh, by the way uh, what was what was yeah. the original book you you say uh, that original? option number one was kiboshed by Covid uh, they wanted to do a book about um, Huddersfield Town and the, the Cowleys because the Cowley brothers are they, they are going to be a big part of football going forward. Yep. I think it would be fair to say. And it was sort of one of them. It would be quite good to get in there early with, with not quite a biography or anything like that, but a, a sort of book that goes into them and, and discusses them at a, a little bit of length. So we were going to do that. But then Huddersfield Town had such a rotten season that it, we started to think before the end of the season, hmm, Who's, who's actually going to read this? And then COVID came along and stopped the championship season for a couple of months. And we were already umming and ahhing, but town came back and they were they were pretty unanimously awful. They managed to survive second game of the season. They beat West Brom and managed to survive. But it had become clear to me that the Cowleys weren't going to be staying. Yeah, well, just, um, just wait they, until they've taken Portsmouth into the Premier League. Well, the thing about them is they're, they're incredibly impressive. Their, their work rate is insane, insane. I know people use, you know, first in and last out as a cliche, but they they genuinely in first in, first in, last out. But it didn't work at Huddersfield Town because they are very, they're very personality-led. They're very, very keen to, you know, they're incredibly ambitious. They were PE teachers who have become football managers 
who have become professional football managers, who have become championship football managers. They, they are phenomenally, not agendered is the wrong word, but they, they have a path that they want to go on. And Huddersfield Town just weren't the right fit for them. And it's a shame because I think they would have taken Huddersfield Town into mid-table this season and then they could have had a serious chance next season. I shall be having a quid or two on Pompey to go up next season yeah. one way or another. But yeah, it was it was a combination of COVID and then that break, it became very clear to me in that break that the Cowleys were likely going in the summer that meant, well, I've got 22,000 words here that nobody's going to want to read so I need another <laughs> I need another outlet here I need yeah. another option yeah. uh, it was it was Gary Stevens of course it was Gary Stevens yeah. uh, Mexico 86 not that Gary Stevens the other Gary Stevens <laughs> as the joke goes yeah. and I ju- it, to be fair I'm going to stick with my original I'm going to say Paul Parker because it was a problem position and Stevens was a very he was a very good functional footballer but you know, for instance, he wasn't as good as Kenny Sampson on the left. Yeah, I think we'll go with Paul Parker, despite the sort of inherent Italian 90 bias so far. To well, this. talking about that, are your wingers Waddle and Barnes? Have to be. Great. Uh, so who be. plays with Gascoigne? I'm going to go with Brian Robson, um, who was phenomenal through that decade. I mean, it, it's no exaggeration to say he was he was comfortably one of the sort of top two, three central midfielders in the world at his best. Yeah, when um, he wasn't injured. There, yeah, there were so many games in that decade where he just pulls England through them. Qualifiers, friendlies, but he just had this horrendous record at tournaments. Mexico 86, he gets injured, the shoulder goes after he's had repeated shoulder problems. And it went before, actually. It went, uh, they were... I think they had him for a game and a half um, and they were lucky to have that really. Euro 88, he is at his best and he was he was really good at Euro 88. The problem was everybody around him let him down and I, I go into it in the book, there are a lot of caveats around Euro 88 as to why England failed. It was it was understandable with hindsight. Robson was, was let down there and then Italia 90 just, again, it, it was just Terrible luck, really, as Achilles went. A lot of people think it was an injury caused by Paul Gascoigne when they were drunk mucking around in a hotel room. It, it wasn't at all. Gazza put that in his book and then retracted it in later life. It, it was the Achilles went, not the broken toe. And, it, yeah, it was, it was just so sad, really, because one of the things that was so clear to me when I went back and I was watching games from this decade and watching obscure England qualifiers and various other things that... Robson was just an unbelievable player. I don't think we have any concept of how good he was in the current, in, in the modern game. But yeah, it, nobody else could partner Gascoigne, really. You've got to have Gazza in there, despite the fact he only comes in right at the back end. And you have a lot of central midfielders that made a huge impact under Bobby Robson, Ray Wilkins and Neil Webb and various others. But, but Robson really was a sort of, at his best, he was unplayable, and he scored, he scored so many goals for England, mm. you know, and like really vital big goals as well. So yeah, it's got to be Robson, got to be Robson, and Robson's got to be captain. To be honest with you, I know course. Terry Butcher might curl his nose up at that, but I'm giving did, the armband to Robson. Did Captain Marvel have a kind of Robin figure to his Batman? I suppose when Robson's shoulder goes after five seconds, Butcher can take the armband. Yeah, 
it's it, Butcher would, would step in. The thing about that, he had, he had his spine, and they were all leaders in their own way. So you had Shilton, who was just incredibly dependable and a very big presence in the squad off the pitch. He was also a utterly terrible loser. So his will to win was sort of was sort of absolute. Then you had Terry Butcher, who was just sort of granite, very similar mindset to Shilton, shall we say. Then you had Robson, who was a lot more dynamic, a lot more sort of all-action in the middle. And then you had Lineker at the top, who people don't think of Lineker as a leader, but he, he used to set the standards, really, a lot of the time. He became a hugely pivotal figure. So when Graham Taylor takes over, and he hasn't got Peter Shilton, he hasn't got Terry Butcher, he has Brian Robson, but Robson at this point is just being held together with... Elastic bands and yeah. he's he's got Lineker, but Lineker's toe problem has started, and he's not the player he was. It's no wonder it was all a bit of a struggle yeah. <laughs> in cold reality. And there is a huge bias in that eleven I've selected towards Italianity, which is the exact thing I'm trying to avoid in the book. If I'm brutally honest, <laughs> also there is just no doubt that. That is where the talent lies in that decade. We we finished. We started with a very quite a deeply average team, which is why sort of dropping Kevin Keegan out of the first squad was such a huge issue. But then we finished with what on paper is a. a I mean, you've got Barnes, uh, Beardsley, and Lineker up front being fed by Waddle and Barnes, Gazza and Robson in the middle. That's quite an impressive. That's quite an impressive attack, to be fair. I'm so sorry that in these this hour and a half we haven't even mentioned the four words in bed with and Maradona. Uh, in thirty <sighs> seconds, how proud are you of it? Uh, incredibly, yeah. It was a, it was a huge part of my life for a long time, and I'm incredibly sad actually that the new owners. I don't know if people know this, but it was taken over by somebody about three years ago, and they've done absolutely nothing with it, which is a real shame because it got passed to them with a lot of promises they were going to do this that and the other they were going to change a lot of things and turn it into something commercial because we had so many opportunities to make a bit of money out of it but we adopt unfortunately or fortunately however you choose to look at it we adopted the factory records persona of mm-hmm. we wanted to be influential rather than big um so we never had any advertising on the site because we thought it made it look ugly we never did any promotional posts. We never did any hyperlink ad posts. So we never made... I think in all my time on the site, I got one pair of football boots <laughs> out of it. But yeah, it's, it's a real shame they haven't done anything with it. And the, the, the 100 project we did, the Young Players project, is something that stands the test of time and that I know a lot of people still refer back to now, which is, is lovely. No, I, I, I came off it's too late. I didn't uh, read it as often as I could. It has been turned into a book. Uh, was it the best yeah. of the first two years? Five years? Yeah, yeah. We did the, we did the first two years. and We wanted to do a follow-up, but we were so busy with it for a long time, even though we weren't making any money from it, that we just, we just never got round to it. But it, some of the projects we embarked on that website are just crazy. I mean, the, the 100 Players Project, if people don't know, is where we looked at... We started with Dumbelon's uh, 100 Best Young Players in the World, and we decided when they stopped doing the list, we were going to do our own list, but we were also going to review their list um, and then going forward for the next few years we would review our own list and and literally say we got this one right we got this one wrong and I mean 
it was thousands of words. It was it, you've got a hundred players, and one year we sort of did a thousand to fifteen hundred words on every single one of them. That's one hundred fifty thousand words in a project. It was gargantuan. Yeah. You know they were massive, but it was it was brilliant because you had sides like Barcelona who were putting it on their website because they they had players in there and. Um, you know, national news stories, and very, it, it was all, yeah. It was it was an incredible thing to be a part of. Well, you'll be pleased to know that I'm printing out the entirety of all those hundred <laughs> players and sticking them in the football library. Uh, it'll be a particularly good resource for me if I'm writing a book about the FA Youth Cup. I'm sure there are lots of young stars who either came yeah. through or were playing uh, over the, the years. Time. Yeah. Over the years, there's there's various young players in there at various Premier League clubs you might come across, yeah. Yep, I will be quick to credit those. David Hartrick, your book Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England, is out now. Uh, you can get it on Kindle for £9.99, but it's only twelve ninety nine uh, if you want a hard copy. Bobby Robson is there. I don't recognise the other two blokes on the cover. Yeah, on the left-hand side, you've got Don Howe. That's Don Howe, yes, I would have guessed... Yeah. Yeah, and on the on the right hand side, that's Norman Medhurst, who was one of the. Fred Street was was the main physio, but Norman Medhurst was a, a one of the other medical team there, and just for the moustache alone, became a bit of a legendary <laughs> figure. He would be a meme. Let's try and get him memeing, memeified, <laughs> uh, to promote this book, Silver Linings, which is an essential book. Um, I think it's better than Henry Winter's book, but that's only because I've spoken to you, David Hartwig, and I'm yet to get. Henry Winter. Uh, will you get to go to any of the matches? Will you come down to London? I would love to, whether I get the chance to or not. I don't know. I've I've been all through lockdown. I work for, for Octa as an in-ground analyst, and all through lockdown I've been at various games, um, and I am very, very ready to watch a game <laughs> with fans in the ground again because it is a... It's a surreal experience. It's not something you ever really get used to. Um... And yeah, it would be lovely because I've done a few. I've done a few quite big games, and they just there's just no way to replicate the sense of consequence a crowd gives you. I think a lot of people we thought like last season would be the COVID asterisk season because of the break and coming back and all that sort of thing. And really, this season I think is the actual COVID asterisk season because it has been it has been strange. And in in ground, you can just see a difference in the players. They're just not. Nothing is quite the same as it would be. You know, I don't think I don't think anybody this season has played at sort of a hundred percent at any point in the season. And I do think that's because you haven't got people in there to be frank forcing you to <laughs> one yeah. way or another. Indeed. Well, so I I would love to, but who knows? And if not Wembley, then maybe Hamden. David Hartwick, have a wonderful, busy football centric summer. Uh and Silver Linings in the Football Library, uh, all the other great books about England managers, including a book by Brian Glanville. He wrote about England's managers. Uh, and I wish Ockley Books very well uh, in the coming years. The website is ockleybooks.co.uk? It is, and from the 1st of June, we're sort of back up and running properly, and we will be, there'll be, We'll be pushing various things and we've got lots of books to release and various, you know, as I said, we've basically been in mothballs for the year to this point. So we're looking forward to to getting the machine going again. And if you do have an idea, there is a contact form on the website. The email address is drh, I won't ask what the R stands for, at (laughs) Ockleybooks.com. 
ockley.co.uk. What is an Ockley? Why is it Ockley? Uh, it was the uh, road in Ditchling, upon which my granddad used to live. Oh. My granddad was a prolific reader of books. He always wanted to write a book, but never actually had the time. So it was. It felt a fitting name. Just like the library! Just like the library!